What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Is it possible to have a busy schedule with an unheard soul? That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you, as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the spaces and places that God has put us. Well, welcome to episode 173. Today is going to be one every leader that I know needs to hear. We sit down with Alan Fadling, and we talk about what it means to be an unhurried leader. It's going to be a really, really good one today. Man, we have been on quite a run this spring. Normally, we come out every other week, but we have had so many amazing guests. We've been having to put out one a week, and it has been such a joy to get to spend time with these leaders, but also to get to spend time with you. If you have enjoyed these episodes, man, I hope you'll hit pause and go to iTunes and leave a rating and review. It means so much to us and share it on social because the more people that can get in this pipeline, the more people we can help uh, come alongside of us to raise the spiritual temperature of the places and spaces that we find ourselves in every day. What was about a year ago, I was driving down the road and I heard Alan Fadling make the statement, it is possible to have a busy schedule and an unhurried soul. I pulled my car over. I wrote his information down because I knew he was a guy I had to spend some time with. So I reached out to him. He was so kind enough to get right back with me. And man, in the middle of his crazy busy schedule, he found time for me. And it was really interesting. We got off our call and I told my wife, I said, he really seems settled and unhurried. And I don't think I was prepared for that. And it was just such a blessing. Alan and his team are putting out so many great resources for you and leaders like you and me. He's got uh, the unhurried leader, the what is your soul love, hold on to that thought, hold that thought. My goodness, it is so good. And it is just full. His his unhurried living library is just full of so many great resources. But today we're gonna unpack what it means to be an unhurried leader. It's gonna be a good one. And in fact, it's gonna be so good. I think you're gonna wanna probably listen to it twice because the first time you're gonna listen to it just to hear it. The second time you're gonna listen to it to take down some thoughts that you can apply to your life. Well, I don't know where you're listening from today, but I want you to do me a favor, and I want you to pull up a chair, and I want you to listen in to my conversation with Alan Fadling about what it means to be an unhurried leader. 
Well, Alan, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. I'm so glad to meet you, Mike, and to have this conversation. Thank you. You know, I I told you where I was. I was driving down the road. You were on a buddy of mine's podcast, Jay Strike's podcast, and you made a comment. And the comment was, it is possible to have a busy schedule with an unhurried soul. Where in the world did that thought emanate from? Walk me back a little bit. Yeah, well... What I'm trying to get at there is when people hear the language of uh, unhurried, I think especially leaders think uh, I must not get anything done, you know, mm-hmm. Mr. Unhurried here. I must sit around in my recliner watching ESPN, you know, who knows. But um, my mentors over the years have been um, leaders who in, uh, who who are about the interplay between leadership and soul care, leadership mm-hmm. and formation, leadership and prayer. It's not an either or, you know, Uh, and so what I want to say to leaders is Jesus had busy days. Mm, There mm. were times when the crowds came all day long with their needs and, and yet Jesus still, uh, Luke 515 describes one of those busy days. And then verse 16 is the one that says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. There's this rhythm in the life of Jesus where he realized the crowds weren't defining him. Mm. He was there to serve the crowds. He was there to love the crowds, but the the crowds were not uh, were not giving him his name. The Father was, and so that idea of being able to be very engaged in a lot of good work and bring an unhurried soul to it has been a it's been a kind of recovery wisdom for me in my own workaholistic tendencies. So there was a point in your journey where you lived on the treadmill, you you lived in the in the in the hamster wheel. Yeah. What what caused you to recognize that and what caused you to go I don't want to stay there. Tell me a little bit of that story. Well, I tell a little bit of it in in my first book in Unhurried Life. Uh I share that I I was a full-time pastor in a local church in Southern California. I was full-time student at seminary and I was newly married. Sadly, I've said this before, my priorities were probably in about that order. Um, Wasn't good. And in my late 20s, I'm burning out. A lot of pastors today know what that feels like. A lot of leaders know what that can feel like. Your activity is outstripping your soul. Mm. You, You don't have enough inner resources to sustain what you're doing. And that's where I was at. I was coming home from long days of work and going up to our guest room, staring at the ceiling in the dark. And I just thought, I can't keep doing this for another few months, let alone another few decades. And so it was that that time God brought some mentors into my life. And they were 10, 20, 25 years older than me. Uh, They weren't burning out though. Mm. And they were in some ways, busier than me. They were involved in more work than I was. And so what they did, I I joke, I say, they reintroduced me to Jesus. They helped me realize that my vision of Jesus was bent a bit, like Jesus is my boss instead of Jesus is Lord and friend. You know, Jesus is the one who has an ever lengthening to-do list for me. Uh, Instead of first, he calls me to communion, and then he calls me to collaboration. Mm. And so I needed to realize who this Jesus I'd come to trust in was and what it meant 
to be invited into his friendship, and then to be invited into his work in the world, doing it with him, not for him as though he's four states away at the home office or something. That's a great way to think about it. And it's funny, none of us would ever physically say that with our lips. No, but we live like that. So if I were to have caught Alan then, and you and I knew each other, and we're we're grabbing breakfast at IHOP there, and in beautiful Southern California, and we're talking about life as a pastor and a, a seminary student and a newly married, and I were to say, "All right, Alan, help me. I'm 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 new in this. What success to you prior to meeting those mentors? What would Alan have told me success looked like? Yeah. Well, it probably going to sound a lot like how many of us measure success. You know, um, Henry Nouwen said we live in a world that we where we tend to identify our, our success in three main ways. He said, uh, we either think of ourselves, we are what we do, so it's accomplishment, uh, or we are what we have, it's acquisition, whether that's physical, it's wealth, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, some form of recognition. And then the third is, I am what other people say about me. Mm. So at that time, I had an enormous recognition deficit that I brought to to my work. And I imagined that I was what I did. And so, of course, the more I do, the more I am. It's an equation. It's just an automatic equation. So suddenly, practices like resting are non, they are practices in non-existence. Mm. Like if I am what I do, resting means I'm not. And that's why I don't do it. That's why uh, I didn't do it. I, I just felt like stopping is is not contributing to my worth as a person and my worth as a leader. And so I would have I would have rattled off my achievements. I would have given you all the statistics of what I was doing. I would maybe hint at name dr- drop some, you know, and these people think I'm cool and those people think I'm cool. And it was an identity treadmill. Mm. And, uh, you know, thankfully, I, I I realized that the hard way in my late 20s. And that was, gosh, 30 some years ago. And uh, part of the transition, part of the transformation was realizing my identity was not a paycheck that I had to keep on earning every two weeks. I, my identity was a gift that I could receive and enjoy and then share in the work that God had given me to do. I went out and I could go out into my work with abundance instead of scarcity. That's so good. That is so good. So when you use the phrase hurried, what does hurried mean? And, And as a leader who's living in a hurried world, when you define, so when we say unhurried, what does hurried mean so we can begin to break this, what this leader looks like down? Yeah, let me just describe some of the sources or forms of hurry that I think, I think that'll help maybe more than trying to figure out a definition. I've never quite come up with a definition I like. Uh, Sometimes I think descriptions can be better. So hurry, for example, in part looks like anxiety. Hmm. It's the sort of thing Jesus talks about, you know, you know, you don't have to worry. Uh, look at the birds. They don't seem to be too worried. When is the last time you saw a bird farm, you know, or bird silos or bird investment plans? You know, it's like the birds seem to be okay and they seem to be taken care of. Maybe you're more important than that. Mm. But anxiety is one form that my hurry, uh, hurry has taken. Another is, you know, uh, the problem of 
of letting other people name me, give me my identity. I, I say that, you know, in my case, my life's vocation has been in vocational ministry. I Half of that 20 years in a local church setting and the last 20 more so just coming alongside leaders, trying to be an encourager, a mentor, a friend. Uh, I went into ministry partly because I thought God that was God's calling for me, but I partly went into ministry because it was a great way to get recognition. Mm. Like if you could achieve stuff, you could have great insights. And then like as a pastor, you get a great sermon, Pastor Allen. Well, I've said before, that was like crack for my recognition starved soul. You know, it's like, oh my goodness, where can I get more of that? Yeah. And so that's a form of hurry. Um, uh, overstimulation is a form of hurry, like feeling like I need more and more and more excitement, more and more and more stimulation. There's a way to do that that's very different than joy that strengthens us. Mm. Uh, joy is good friends with peace. Joy is good friends with love. Excitement, not always the same. So those are some of the ways. I've Another way in reverse, I've said that the fruit of the spirit are a beautiful description of Jesus unhurried way. Mm. Not one of those virtues works well in a hurry. You know, Jesus is such a great example. When you read the gospels and you watch Jesus walk through, and I think they've done such a great job in the chosen mm. of portraying what I believe that he may have been like. Yeah. What was it about him that strikes you the most as you read them, as you peel those stories and tell those stories and set those story, stories down in your soul? What are some of the things of Jesus that might really surprise us? Because he crammed an eternity into three years of ministry, which is crazy. Well, in in an unhurried life, a few of the chapters that book originally, the title I proposed was Jesus and Unhurried Savior. Mm-hmm. And part of what I was trying to do there was paint a picture of Jesus that I was coming to uh, see in the page of the gospel. So uh, there are a number of ways I see that in him. One, he doesn't start ministry till he's 30. Like his preparation is far longer than mm-hmm. mine was. I started ministry at 20. Wow. Nothing wrong with that. A lot of my friends did too. I'm just saying, you know, if you were uh, if you were coming up out of the water at your baptism, and that was the beginning of your ministry, would the next thing you did forty days in the wilderness? Probably not. You'd go out and try and plant something, start something, launch something. Again, nothing wrong with any of those activities, but Jesus had a remarkable sort of pace. Hmm. The reason I think in three years he gets more done than I've gotten done in forty is because of his pace. And so I talk about that. I, I say, you know, Jesus moved at the pace of grace. We often move at the pace of hurry, at the pace of drivenness. You know, Jesus moved at the pace of peace. You know, he is literally a prince of peace. I mean, literally. So what would it do to our souls if we remembered we're living in communion with a prince of peace? Or Jesus has time to pour an immense amount of those three years into a small circle of 12. That's right. Like leadership development, you and I both know. That is an incredibly time-consuming activity, and its immediate rewards are never apparent. You always feel like you could get more done just doing it yourself Hmm. than you could coming alongside a few and helping them live in deeper-rooted communion with God and learn better how to cooperate with what God is up to. 
And then I hinted earlier, but that line in Luke 5, 16, you know, that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. I had to come to grips with the fact that if that sentence were written about me in certain seasons, the sentence would have read, Alan never withdraws to lonely <laughs> places to pray <laughs> because I'm just too busy and I'm doing important things. And what in the world would that contribute to my productivity anyway? Well, Jesus understood how productivity actually works in the kingdom of God. When you didn't, when you didn't go away to lonely places, what was the inherent fear of going to those places? What was going to happen in your brain as a hurried leader? Yeah. If I withdraw, what what are the fears that's going to happen if I pull away? What what would you say? Yeah. So one is an odd vision of mathematics, like productivity is pluses and minuses. And so if I go and withdraw to a lonely place, that is a minus. I am not producing something in that moment. Uh, that's one. I think uh, another reality is that um, I was afraid of what God might say if mm. I went to go and be alone. Like, I knew I'd come up short here and there, and I'd cross lines here and there. I, I would rather just stay busy for God than approach God and listen to his voice. That's what I thought I would rather. I came to realize that bringing myself exactly as I am with my shortcomings, with my offenses, with my stumbles and struggles into the presence of mercy, into the presence of grace, little by little, that made me a better spiritual leader than the me that kept doing busy things for God. And then after the fact, hoping God might bless them. So those are some of the dynamics. What I've come to realize is I have no better resource as a spiritual leader than my own life being transformed by God. Mm. I mean, that's what I bring to anything I do, whether I'm coaching somebody or speaking to a group or working on a creative project. Christ in me, being shaped in me, becoming at home in me is the greatest resource I have to bring to others. You talk about this in The Unhurried Leader, and you talk about overflow, mm. and you talk about the greatest gift we give others is what God does in us and through us. What does that overflow look like? And for somebody that's not feeling it, they're yeah. not experiencing it. What can that overflow of that time with the Lord? And you, I know I've heard you say, I heard you say on another podcast, you know, there's something about looking into Jesus' face that slows your soul. What comes in that overflow? What would you say? Yeah, so maybe a metaphor would help. Um, so Psalm 23 talks about overflow. And the image there, the metaphor there is my cup overflows. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's say that cup is our lives. So there's a way to live where I run around like a chicken with my head cut off with my cup upside down pouring stuff out, solving problems, fixing things, planning stuff, pour, 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 pour. And what do I end up with? An empty cup. Whereas if you could imagine that cup upright and above that cup is a pitcher, a pitcher of cold, fresh water being poured out, that pitcher is God with me, God giving generously to me, God filling my soul. And then as that cup fills and then it spills, 
that becomes what I give to others. I don't give to others at the cost of my soul. I give to others from the abundance of my soul. I learn to meet others from a place of deep joy and great peace. I get to come to others with a, a, a confident identity to be able to affirm them. I don't need them to say something nice to me. I'm not desperate for them to affirm me. I've got an abundance from the Father that I can bring to another. And so to me, overflow is a way of saying, it's it's a way of understanding Jesus' words about seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his good way, his righteousness, and everything else. Uh, in that context, of course, food and clothing and all that, but everything you need as a leader comes from that communion. And I make the mistake of trying to bring my hungers and thirsts, my emptinesses, to my work, hoping my work will fill that up. Well, it never does. That's not what, what work is a place of giving. Work is a place of expressing, and I need to find the places of replenishment and filling. That's what I find in communion with God. Is that what you saw in those other leaders, and you didn't even know what it was? You said their schedules were busier than yours. Was yeah. it the overflow that you felt when you were with them? Th that's exactly it. For example, you and I were chatting here before we hit record, and uh, one of those mentors was the very first college pastor at Saddleback Church, which is three miles from where I live. And uh, he was a man who was about the age of my dad, maybe a little bit older. Uh, he was fresh. Mm. He was alive. He was interested in me. He wasn't trying to impress me to get me to say what a great guy he was. There was a selflessness about him. There was a humility about him. All of these words to me are beautiful descriptions of Jesus, you know, that he's gentle, he's humble. It's kind. These are fruits of the Spirit. This is what God's like. And Jesus comes to help us see him. And I saw that facet of who God is in these mentors. And I just realized, this is what I was made for. This is the kind of person I want to become. This is, And so, you know, the, the strange thing is a couple of those mentors have already moved on, passed away. And now I'm older than most of the, the uh, most of who they were and how old they were back then. So I get to be that guy now for for younger leaders. And it's, it's a lot of fun. How long did it take you to begin to embrace that where you reach the point of going, okay, what I thought was success before is not success. This is who I want to be. How long did it take you to settle in to this new paradigm, this new way of living a busy schedule with an unhurried soul? How did, how long was that process? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think what I'd say is my burnout made me pretty desperate. Mm -hmm. So I I found myself sold pretty quickly. Like, this hasn't worked. Admittedly, I'd only been doing it for a few years in my late 20s. But this isn't working. And so I was very hungry for a new way. Now, how long did it take for that way to take shape in me and take root in me and become my actual way of living and leading? Now, that was a number of years. In some ways, I'd say it's still happening. Mm -hmm. I'm still on the journey of of learning that, you know, my identity is not in how well my book is selling on Amazon. You know, I'm tempted to ch check that number and see how I compare <laughs> to all the other folks. Not, that's not my identity. I, obviously, I want lots of people to read books I write. You don't write books, so no one will read them. That's right. But, but that's different than, you know, I'm a great person because I have a bestseller or man, I suck because the book's selling horribly. Um, uh, so it, 
it's taken a while to grow in my confidence That's that good. this unhurried way is more fruitful than my busy day, busy way ever was, my frantically hur- hurried way ever was. You know, and you hit it in the book and you talk about how we have to figure out whose kingdom we're about and what am I up to here? If I am, am I building a kingdom that won't last or am I part of a larger kingdom? Why does every leader, I think every person has to wrestle with it, but the high striving, high push, I'm a Christ follower. So now I'm going to be a part of doing this too. Why do we have to wrestle with this whole kingdom concept? Yeah, well, because I think it is a basic human challenge. (laughs) I just think, you know, you read the story of the scriptures and the story of our first father and our first mother, they sort of say, we can do this ourselves. We can do this on our own. We can get what we need on our own. We can we can live our lives, make our lives good on our own. And we discovered that didn't work so well. And we keep discovering that doesn't work so well. So there's this odd way that, you know, in again, in my case, my vocation has been in uh, pastoral ministry. There's this odd way in which I imagine I can do it. And then I'm glad for God's spirit to sort of be the spare tire in the trunk when I need him. But mostly I got it covered. Mostly I know what I'm doing. I've I've got skills. I've got information. I've got insight. I've got experience. I've got some personality. I'm sure glad God gave me all those things. Now I'll just go out and whip that up into a recipe for measurable quantitative success. And there you go. And now I feel good about myself, except it doesn't work. <laughs> and I just I just wonder sometimes if we could like as an imaginative exercise, imagine we are now 10,000 years from now. What is it when we look back that we'll be grateful for? And what is it when we look back, we'll think, oh, I wish I hadn't given so much time and energy and attention to that. That sure didn't matter very much. Because one of the things one of my mentors often said is, you know, God called us to bear fruit that lasts. And fruit that lasts always involves people. Mm. but hurry often turns my life into a lot of things that I'm managing and building and solving and producing. And I forget that people are what matters and what lasts. And that's who Jesus came for. You know, you, you address that and you, you made a great statement in the book. You said hurried leaders are quick to do slow to be quick to speak, slow to listen, quick to teach, slow to learn, quick to lead others, but slow to let God lead them beside the still waters one hundred percent. What keeps you now beside the quiet waters? Because you you step out from the pastorate, now you're building a company. Now you're built. Now you're you're a you're 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 dependent and yeah. on others and speaking engagements and and coaching clients and all that. What keeps Alan beside the quiet waters? So this is what you not just teach about; you actually practice it. Yeah, I appreciate that question. Um, My own sense of deeply felt need keeps me coming back, realizing that my thirsts, my thirst for purpose, my thirst for fruitfulness, my thirst for meaning, 
uh, my thirst for peace, for joy, for whatever it is, all the thirsts of my soul. Um, I've come to find that only God can meet me there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I am desperate, you know, so language of humility and language of dependence and language of surrender, very unpopular words for American culture, but very fitting words for the kingdom of God. I was meant to need God. Mm -hmm. I was made to be satisfied and nourished. My soul comes alive in communion with God, period. Uh, that is my life. And then I express that life in the work that I do. When I've gotten that reversed, uh, work is draining mm-hmm. and and work empties my soul. And I just I still find myself in seasons where I've 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 been trapped back into the I am what I do and I am what I acquire and I am what people say about me. That's just the kind of world I live in. And so I have to keep relearning. I'm still in recovery. I'm still learning how um, this is eternal life, that they might know you mm. and the one whom you've sent, Jesus says in his uh, upper room prayer. That is a fact. That is kingdom reality. And that is what I'm learning to settle more and more into in my own way of living and leading. You did something really interesting. You broke apart Isaiah 30. I'd never heard anyone do this before. And you talked about lessons for an unhurried leader out of Isaiah 30. And in that passage, there are just some incredible principles. I tell you, um, you know, you and I've both, uh, I'm not, I'm not a young chicken anymore either. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I used to be the, the, the young guy around town. Now I'm the old guy around town. Um, I had never heard anybody do this before. And I'd never heard this broken apart like that. In Isaiah 30, what are some of the lessons we all need to learn about this unhurried leader and what they can do with quietness, trust, dependence, rest? Unpack that a little bit for me. Yeah, so the 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 line is, you know, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. And this is the title of that chapter in my version here is Woe to the Obstinate Nation. Ouch. (laughs) Stubborn bunch of people. None of us are ever that way, I know. But just these people have a problem with stubbornness. And so what I, and then, you know, um, in quietness and trust is your strength. And the last line of that verse is the most sad line you ever read, but you would have none of it. Mm. He said, in fact, he says, no, we're going to flee on horses. So God says, well, you're, you're going to flee. All right. Said, no, we'll ride off on swift horses. Cause so if horsepower isn't enough, more horsepower will be strategy number two. Now, what's interesting there is the language of strength and salvation, you know, in repentance, rest is your strength. Strength and salvation, those are leadership uh, qualities, categories. We want leaders to come in and save us, rescue us, help us, solve our problems. We want leaders to be strong, to be capable, to to be able to do good things for us. Where are we going to find that? Well, we sort of assume we're going to find it in a brash, high-confident, you know, big, big personality person. 
Well, Israel had a few kings like that. Um, that didn't always go so great. Saul comes to mind, you know. He was a man of remarkable stature, but that wasn't the quality God was looking for in repentance, in rest, in quietness, in trust. It's where you're going to find the sort of salvation and strength you would like to live in and lead in for the good of others. So I just don't think those qualities, repentance, what's that? It's it's turning back. It's turning away and turning back. Rest, imagining that rest is a place of you know, salvation and strength for us. We think only work is that. Now, actually, rest is a place where I remember who I am. Rest is a place where I gain a vision for what God's calling me to do. And it's where I find resources to then go and do it. Quietness, you know, we think that uh, great leaders are just people who can talk real good. And yes, communication is a critical uh, gift and activity for leaders. But where do you learn what to say? Mm. You learn what to say in quietness. You learn what to say by listening. Uh, and then trust. Um, where is our confidence? You know, at times my confidence was in my giftedness or in my experience or in my track record. And I'm glad for some good things God's done both in and through me. But my best confidence is a confidence that's redirected to to God with me. Mm-hmm. That's my source of reliable confidence. Because if my confidence is something I do, then what about the week when I don't do so well? That's right. That's right. You know, it, you you talk a lot about not getting, not running ahead of God. Is the way you don't run ahead of God, that, that face-to-face connection, that day-by-day finding peace in Him? How have you, because you're a striver personality, just like everybody else, mm. how have you kept yourself as a as a leader, as somebody who wants to make a difference in the time we have here on this earth, how have you kept yourself from getting too far out in front of God working in your life? Right. Well, so one of the things that we talk a lot about in our training, in our coaching here at Unhurry Living is we talk about, you know, leaders are not just about activity. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are activities for leaders to engage, but leaders need to learn how to cultivate receptivity. There are a whole set of spiritual disciplines that are about not doing something. A discipline like solitude is about not being with people like you normally would be. A discipline like silence is not just, you know, filling your life with words like you usually would do or mm-hmm. fasting, you know, it, your, your relationship with food. It's those stepping back disciplines, those disciplines of abstinence, those disciplines of not doing something that are almost like the inhale side of breathing. That's good. When when we're just busy, 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 it's like trying to live on exhale only. You know, try doing that for 60 seconds. Mm. <laughs> not not going to be very good for you. And so developing a rhythm of life where some of these stepping back, I, I consider it a facet of my discipleship to Christ that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places. I might do well to follow him there and figure out what that rhythm would look like in my life. Admittedly, it may not look exactly the way it looks in Jesus, but he's a wonderful model. He's a great guide and he's a capable teacher. And I could learn from him if I wanted to, to live the way he lives in my life as I find it now. You talk about one of my other favorite parts of the book. You talked about this unhurried leader 
when they come in God's presence, and this was out of Isaiah 55, they come, they listen, they buy, and they eat. Hmm. Such a great picture of entering the Lord's, because I don't think any of us are going to enter the Lord's presence in a hurry. I think everything <laughs> in the world will slow down. What does that look like, this come, listen, buy, and eat? What does that mean to a person driving in traffic in, in Los Angeles or Atlanta to work? What does it mean when they have met with the Lord for those things to happen? Yeah, so... I love those verbs, those lines in the first few verses of Isaiah 55, come, come to me, he says. Uh, every one of those words is a receptivity word. It's something we point at God in a receptive way. Uh, our lives are often full of go, 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 and God's first invitation is always come. Our word, our worlds are full of words that we listen to and words that we speak, but God's first invitation is listen, listen to me. Mm. Um, buy. I like this one. The buy it we use in popular language. I buy that. Well, I don't buy that. What do we mean? We mean faith. We mean trust. Mm. We mean confidence. We mean belief. Um, a lot of times as leaders, we are sell, 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 sell. We're trying to convince everybody else of something important to do. Buy my product. Do what I'm. Be a part of what I'm doing. And there's nothing wrong with that. But first, God invites us to buy, to mm. trust to to uh entrust ourselves to him and then finally eat i was thinking about this this morning how do you nourish a soul what does that look like and jesus i think again models this beautifully for us in the wilderness when he's being tempted when he's in the middle of fasting for 40 days he's tempted to make stones into bread and he says no uh we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. We live in communion with God. That is the air that fills our soul's lungs. That is the food that nourishes our souls. Um, that's what I'm trying to cultivate. You know, when God made people, he didn't need an army of workers. He had workers. They're called angels. He didn't make us first to do jobs. He made us first for love. He made us first for communion. He made us first for friendship. And one facet of that is the honor of being a collaborator with God's intentions for this world he's made. So my work grows out of my friendship with God rather than my friendship hopefully happening somehow in the middle of all the work I'm trying to do. I know I heard you say this statement. And I thought it was so good. When we slow down, we see more. And, yeah. and I think for every leader, they don't think of it that way. What are you able to, to see when you have an unhurried soul that you will miss when you are hurried? Yeah. So, you know, uh, here in California, we've got a freeway, the five freeway. You know, it's just this long, straight stretch up through the valley north of us here. And, you know, you could just floor it and just have this blur next to you. Hurry looks like that blur right mm -hmm. next to you. You just can't make out any details. Hurry feels like being in a tunnel, being on a long straight highway and just surrounded by blur. But even on that highway, if I just lift my vision about five degrees, I'll look up and see to my left the coastal range. Still, solid, rooted. 
On the other side, I'll see the Sierra Nevadas, solid. Up ahead, I'll probably see some clouds on the horizon. There's a stillness on the horizon, and there's a sense in which I can learn how to see God when I slow down on the inside. I learn how to do what uh, someone like Brother Lawrence centuries ago talked about, practicing the presence of God. That's what we want to learn how to do right in the middle of what we're doing and where we're going and what we're saying and all the things that fill our calendar and all the things that fill our um, our schedules, our daily schedules. We want to be people living in God and bring that to everything we do and everyone we're with. We'll also say when we slow down, we have time for relationships. Take me back to, to Alan not not finding this discipline, not finding those mentors. What would have happened to those relate? You were a young married pastor. If if you hadn't have hit reset, what would have happened to those relationships compared to what they are now? Yeah, um, the problem with my my uh, hurry was that. Um, my relationship with people was profoundly skewed. Again, I would I would run past people to get important things done for God. I thought I was getting them done for God. Uh, I have all these programs to plan. I have all these things to say. Um, and then the people became cogs in the machine I was building. I was using people instead of loving people. And I think they felt that from me. Um, since that be, that transition, I began to realize people are my work. And it doesn't matter what my work is. Even if my work is managing schedules and building things, eventually what I do in my work, whatever that work is, it's important and valuable because of the people it helps. And so I work alongside people or I work under people or I serve clients or I serve members of a community or whatever. The people are what map. And so I'm not wasting time when I give time to people. But hurry, you know, I I don't know if you've had this experience. I've had it way too many times where you've been talking to somebody and they're looking about five degrees to the right or left of you. They're already at the next place. Their soul is no longer in the building. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I've been that person too. And there just isn't a thing so important that I cannot be present, at least for a few moments, to the person right in front of me. Um, And so, you know, people are what matter. And back then, uh, I didn't know that. I thought I was just there to do lots of things and keep people doing important spiritual activities. And it wasn't, I don't have very many lasting friendships from those years, I'm sad to say. Mm. You know, I think all of us have been that person and have experience that person looking past us, seeing, seeing what's next and thinking, I mean, I think every date I went on before I met my wife, I think every date I went on, they were doing that. They were looking for a way out. I do believe what was going on, but you know, when you made another comment too, and you said, when you're hurried, you lose sight of what's going on inside of you. You Dallas Willard, one of your uh, mentors, talked a lot about the soul. How is it easy to miss diagnostically what's going on in the engine room of our lives if we never slow down? Yeah. 
Well, you know, it's been said in a lot of different ways by a lot of smarter people than me that, you know, self-awareness, self-examination, it's the other side of knowing God is knowing ourselves. And do I know why I'm doing what I do? Am I aware, for example, of moments when anxiety is the engine mm. of this initiative mm. I'm taking? Am I aware that anger is driving me right now? Uh, not gentleness, not kindness, not uh, peace, but anger. Am I aware that impatience rather than patience is the motor that's moving me in this hurried pace that I'm in? If I'm not aware of that, here's the thing. Two people can do the exact same task, but who they are doing it makes a great deal of difference into what that task produces. So again, we're back to people. We're back to souls. We're back to who I am when I'm doing mm. what I do and who Jesus was when he did every single thing he did. There was such potency in each of those encounters. I mean, you think of the woman at the well. That's you have right. this little moment that changes her life and changes a whole region. One little encounter. I'd lo love to be the sort of person who can have that potent an encounter with individuals who I may only just cross paths with once. And that has to do with the quality of the kind of person I'm becoming. It really, and you even think of the story of Jesus getting off the boat and I believe it was Jairus, his daughter was dying and he came to get him and they go to the house because she is, she is literally dying. And while he's on the way to the house, the woman with the issue of blood grabs him and he deals with her while this dad waits. What was it that Jesus knew? Of course, we're putting on our, we think lenses, not our actual lenses, what do you think it was that Jesus knew to be able to stop in that moment and be completely with this woman who was an outcast of society, who had no hope, while knowing there was somebody who was hurried waiting on him? What was it that he knew that we need to remember? Yeah, I think that what comes to my mind is maybe the gospel of John does the best job of highlighting this, that Jesus says things like, you know, these words I speak, they're not my own. I only speak that which I hear the father saying. And these works I'm doing, I'm just doing what I see the father doing. I just think Jesus had learned to live a human life, yes, as God, but to live a human life in communion with the father by the spirit. He had an ear for the voice of the Spirit. He had a sense of where God was leading. I don't mean in some sort of map quest, Google Maps sort of lefts and rights every 10 minutes kind of way, but he had a, a sense of the Spirit of the Father as he traveled. And so while, yes, of course, he was responding to Jairus and, and to the concern that he had for his daughter, he was also paying attention to what the father might be saying along the way. Uh, my problem is I'm uh, I'm a major planner, mm. love planning. Uh, people used to joke about me in my five-year plans back in my 20s. And <laughs> not one of those five-year plans ever uh, happened, but boy, I sure felt, I sure felt confident that I had them. Um, it's been nice to realize God has centuries-long mm. plans and mm. millennia-long plans. And 
And he is fulfilling what he intends in ways that are longer than even my life. And what a gift it would be, and it is, to learn how to have an ear attentive to how God may be speaking and guiding and be ready to have my plans changed. Mm. Uh, some of the best things that have ever happened in my work were not on my schedule when I got up that morning. Really is amazing. And it it's what we will all want one day. One day we're all going to look back and this is how we're going to wish we would have lived. Probably my favorite part of the book. And there's so, I mean, the book for every leader, it just resonates because everybody feels it. You, you go, I get that. I understand that. You talk about Romans chapter eight and questions that unhurried leader leaders have to wrestle with. If God is for us, who can be against us? That is so profound how you took Romans 8 there. What happens to us if we get, if God's for us, it really doesn't matter who's against us. What does that do to our spirit and our soul when we come to a place of answering that question? Yeah. So, you know, gosh, I've just spent so much time doing things to try and encourage God to like me. You know, like I'm trying to convince him I'm worth liking. And what a silly investment of time and attention and energy. Um, it's like waking up on Christmas morning and then wondering how much the gifts cost. Mom and dad, how much do I owe you? You know, it's the wrong question. And I've I've just invested a lot of time and energy trying to earn something I already had. So trying to trying to get something that's already available to me. And so what I'm trying to learn how to do is receive what I already have, what mm -hmm. God is already extending. So if God is for me, now he may not be for all my great plans. There's all kinds of stuff that he's not for that I'm doing or have done or think I'll do, but he is for me. He is for my good. He is, he couldn't do more than he has done and is doing to foster my life being the best life it could be. Uh, that which he's begun in us, he is going to keep at it until that work's done. And, and then Romans 8, 32, he didn't even spare his own son. Yeah. You asked the question, won't, what won't God give us? If he gave us his son, when did you mentally, we understand Jesus died for us and he became our savior when we accepted him. When did that settle in your soul that he did that for Alan, that yeah. he did that for you? He wouldn't even spare his own son to show you how much he loved you. When do you, what age do you think you were when you finally got that? Well, I think I'd say that that has been an ongoing journey. You know, mm -hmm. I think there've been some moments, some really important moments. I remember one time I was in a, an extended time of solitude, probably 30 something. And, and God just met me in a powerful way. You, know, you, you read stories about things like this happening to people. Uh, but it's different when there's a moment where you just know to the very center of who you are, that God loves you. Um, one of the reasons that practicing disciplines like solitude or silence or whatever is so important is it's a moment when I'm not doing something and God can love me. 
when I'm always busy, I'm tempted to think, oh, of course God loves me. Look at all the great stuff I'm doing for him. And so I, I turn his love into something conditional when it, it, it isn't that. Mm. Um, I think the other thing is a lot of my hurry has been rooted in a vision of scarcity. Mm. There just isn't enough. There just isn't enough. And if I'm not frantically hurrying, I'm not going to have enough. And maybe the Lord is actually my shepherd. And maybe I won't actually find myself in a place of want. Mm. Um, my anxiety predicts great deficits in my future, great emptinesses, great failures, great catastrophes. And, the, and my anxiety has been a false prophet more times than I can tell you. Amen. And yet I keep coming back to it like he was some, like he was my wonderful counselor or something. You know, come on, man. <laughs> we slow learners, man. We are I'm all slow you. learners, aren't we? Yeah. The the final question. There's two more questions. The, the final question that you asked there out of Romans eight thirty five, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I think every leader fears failure. Yeah. Every leader fears letting people down. Every leader worries that they aren't enough. When we settle in the reality in our souls, you're his. And you'll always be his because he wants you. What does that do to your soul? Yeah, well, what it does to my soul is I then come to my work with confidence. Amen instead of insecurity. I I come to my work hopeful instead of uncertain. Um, God has given me some good work. You know, I love the line in Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Well, what that says to me is that whatever my job happens to be, God has already been there. Amen. God is already at work. God has been opening doors and providing ways and opening paths, and I get to walk those paths with him. That's a very different vision than, you know, my work as something, you know, oh, goodness, I, I have to do well enough or else I'm a nobody or else I won't be affirmed or else I won't be loved. We do live in a world that's like that, where love is is quite conditional. But this isn't, is, this isn't the sort of God God is. Mm. And uh, it's made an immense difference to be able to come to my work with a soul that's full rather than a soul that's wanting. You, you told a story in the book about Dallas Willard's casket. Mm. And you yeah. stood there along with many, many others and those that he had poured into. And you laid a flower, a rose on that casket. Mm. What struck you most about that moment? Yeah. Well, I'm looking around the circle at the time. I hadn't uh, I hadn't done a whole lot yet, and I saw other people who I knew were public figures and well-known authors. And, and I thought of Dallas, and I thought of things I'd heard him say and certainly things I'd read in his books. But what, what I felt in that moment was a great appreciation for who Dallas was. I remembered moments where I had a brief conversation with him here or there. Uh, I remember his being present. Hmm. Like you hear people say, yeah, it's like you were the only person in the room, you know. That isn't something you can just try to do. 
That's, that's right. someone you have to become, like to live at the pace of presence. You have to practice that for a long time to be able to actually settle in and be all ears for the one that's right in front of you. And that's what I experienced with Dallas whenever I was uh, with him. And so uh, that's what I, I, I sort of in that moment thought, I, I want to be more that sort of person than I've been. I want to learn how to be with the one I'm with and not have about 50% of my attention already thinking about the next task, the next appointment, the next place I'm planning to be. Um, it's, it's, it's good to realize now's the only moment I got. Now's the only moment of grace. Now is the only moment where I can do something good. Now is where my life is, and it's where God is, and that's good news. There'll be a day that others will stand above ours, mm -hmm. and they will stand there with thoughts of who we were, and they will lay a, a rose on that casket. When that happens one day, what do you hope they say, your family, the people closest to you, the people you've mentored and coached and the people that have read your books, but, but really that circle that knows you the most. What do you hope one day they tell somebody like me about you? Yeah, I would hope that something that sounds like the great commandment would be the tone of their comments. You know, that there's one great commandment to love God, heart, soul, mind, strength, and the overflow of that is loving our neighbor as ourselves. I would hope that the kinds of comments that are made sound like that. You know, Alan was somebody who really loved God and knew God loved him. And the fruit that bore in Alan's life was that he loved people and he helped point people to the God who loves them. That this would be the main thing my life will have been about when it's all said and done. Um, that's what I hope. That was solid, wasn't it? Oh my goodness, so much great content. You definitely, it's one of those books that you're going to want to get and read because it's good for your soul. I think anything that makes you slow down is good for your soul. And I tell you this, Alan's a guy I want to get to spend some more time with in the future as he puts out new resources and his book Unhurried Life is a whole separate deal and we're going to get into that hopefully next time we get together so so good well in our next episode we get to continue our string of great uh, leaders and great content we get to sit down with leadership coach and consultant Holly Moore and we're going to be talking about the five voices within us that she does training on from uh, the giant group and it is so good. In fact, we've applied it to our staff here at North Star. And you're going to love Holly. You're going to love her thoughts. You're going to love her passion for life and leadership. And it's going to be a good one. Well, once again, thanks for joining me today. Go and leave a rating and review if you could. Share this on social. And I can't wait to be with you again next week on Lynch with a Leader. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.